These days, it's not hard to figure out what people are against. Loud opinions on social media, tense conversations with friends or family, lines drawn in the sand. Maybe we need to redefine what we're against. Well, good morning. Uh, for any who don't know me, my name is John Perrine. I am the community pastor here. I am so excited, as Jesse already hyped about Taco Fest afterwards. Do stick around. It is going to be really, really great. Uh, but to dive in here, uh, I wanted to point out to you uh, a show that you perhaps have seen or haven't seen. Any even raise a hand? Anyone had a chance to see this show? What would you do? Uh, it's a primetime show. It kind of came out of ABC's primetime. And it's really fascinating. You can look at the YouTube videos of previous episodes. They sort of stage a real-life experiment where a couple people will be in on whatever the staging is, and they, they go after some, like, superficial stuff. You know, so I think I just saw a video that was one man shopping who breaks down crying, and they asked uh, if a woman breaks down crying, how would people respond versus if a man breaks down crying in a shopping experience? which, if we're being honest, that definitely can happen, so I'm glad they experimented. You can watch that video. Uh, but then they dive also into much more heavy-hitting, serious questions around race and gender and religion, where people are interacting with various racial, religious tensions and real-life circumstances, and they just get to reflect on, hey, what, what would you do? Uh, this morning, we're going to actually be looking at the passage this morning. It's on the Good Samaritan. And so there's obviously this great connection of what would you do? What would you do if you found yourself in a scenario, in a circumstance that perhaps is charged, perhaps just has a real need sitting in front of you, perhaps is very uncomfortable? Yet, uh, the reason why the band is still up here with me is that our creative team put together a video that, uh, it's, it's a little cheesy, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna give you my opinion up front, <laughs> but we're gonna do this together, and I think there is a payoff at the end that will make this message just a little more memorable for you. So I wanted to turn to some real-life videos that our creative team put together. What would you do? And we're going to get a chance together to interact and reflect on Alec Bramlett, who's one of our creative directors over in Naperville. Um, we're going to watch him in some real-life scenarios and get some interaction around what you would do. So we'll go ahead and turn to our first video here. So Alec is walking along, sees the table with treats, and finds that there's just one water bottle remaining. Just the one water bottle. Don't know if you've ever found yourself in this uh, very real circumstance. High stakes, high stakes. So the question is, what would you do? What would you do? Anyone want to shout out what you would do in this moment? What's the right response to finding one water bottle left on the table? Take it. Okay. I, yeah, take it. Okay. Well, we are going to be talking about selfishness. Great. So we've, we've got off to a great start. Uh, okay, so some would take it. I mean, do you throw the plastic away? Do you, do you grab a big handful of snacks to kind of even out the water you're going to drink? Let's go ahead and watch Alec, and I'll have the band help us. So, and we're about to see here, it looks like... Uh, <laughs> selfish. Uh, he took it, he drank it. Okay, uh, so that's a little insight into Alec. We'll go to the next video. Great job, band. We, we nailed it. Uh, we practice that a lot, just in case you were wondering. Uh, we'll go to the next video here, the next circumstance that Alec finds himself in. Okay, so here he has now found himself with a trash can that is overflowing. He's got his water bottle, his snacks. Decision time. You know, what would you do here in this circumstance? Anyone, what would you do? What, 
take out the trash. Wow, take out the trash. Uh, even if it's not yours, public street, take out the trash. Uh, that's really generous. Anyone else? Uh, push the trash down. That's a kind of nice, yeah, so it's great. Okay, so let's go ahead and see now what Alec does here. And again, we'll get the band in on this. All right, Alec's thinking, he's trying to figure out, he's determining, and it looks like selfish. Just puts it right on top, moves along. Again, great job, guys. We're nailing this. All right, next video, we'll go ahead. This is our final circumstance. Okay, so there's Shrimp Cocktail in our creative department's team. Uh, it's very fancy out in Naperville. Uh, they have shrimp cocktails, apparently. He's trying to figure out what does he do with this shrimp cocktail? What would you do if you found yourself with a cup full of shrimp cocktail? Anybody, any takers, what would you do with shrimp cocktail? Eat it. Eat the whole thing. That's a lot of shrimp. Uh, okay, eat it. Anyone else? Any last? Leave it. Any non-shrimp takers? This isn't actually a hard decision. Okay, so we'll go ahead and watch our final video here. He's eating it. Yeah. Oh. Hey, oh. you see my shrimp cocktail? Oh, no. That's no. Dave Ferguson, our lead pastor. <laughs> Turns out he was shellfish. Now... I'm gonna be honest with you, I struggled with whether or not to show you this video, but I guarantee that after this service, the only thing you'll remember from this message is shellfish. So, thank you. Let's give a round of applause to the band for their help. Thank you guys. That's great. So, uh, while that was very fun and lighthearted, we're diving in here to, uh, a pretty heavy, hard-hitting reflection that I think, if we're being honest, actually does hit a little bit closer to home, what we're actually against as we open up this topic of selfishness. So I think it actually is kind of nice to start uh, with real-life decisions that have a low impact on those people around us, like whether you take the water bottle, whether you push the trash down, whether you apparently eat Dave Ferguson's shrimp cocktail that he has lying around. But if we push deeper into our own lives, the stakes get higher and higher. The more we find ourselves accumulating these small moments, these small decisions, where we find so often, uh, the reason why we laugh at Alec's experience is that when we ourselves are there in the privateness of a moment and a decision is before us, we find it is just so much easier, isn't it, to, to turn that decision towards your own interest, to just live in your own reality. I was actually trying to think of what a picture would be that could help us sort of describe the power of selfishness if we're truly being honest in each of our lives. And the best I could come up with was Star Wars in 1977 when A New Hope came out and there's this scene, I, I know I've got to have at least a few Star Wars fans here in the building this morning, where as the Millennium Falcon's trying to fly away from the Death Star, it finds itself caught in the tractor beam, right? This gravitational force that just slowly pulls its greatest attempts to get away back, 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 all the way into the Death Star. Uh, as I was sitting with the picture of the tractor beam, the tractor beam of selfishness that pulls us back into ourselves, I actually stumbled across a theologian, and a pretty weighty theological theme by Martin Luther. Martin Luther was the 15th century monk who famously nailed the 95 Theses and kicked off the Protestant Reformation. But Martin Luther was himself 
a monk. So he lived in a highly charged religious environment, and yet Martin Luther was kind of obsessed with chronicling his own selfishness. This was his great struggle. If you really slow down and think with him on it, he started to look at every day, and he would have this opportunity to confess his sins every day or at least once a week. And as Martin Luther was doing this, he kept being struck by how many moments in his day-to-day life he was, in fact, selfish as opposed to folk, uh, looking outward at others. As he met with his confessors, there's actually this story, if you look into Martin Luther's life, that uh, famously one of his confessors said, I can't do this anymore. (laughs) You're confessing too much. I can't keep hearing you chronicle this list of day-to-day moments where as you walked in the door, you decided you wanted a cup of coffee instead of turning to say hi to someone. As, As you're walking down the street, someone was standing off to the side of the road and seemed like something might not be okay, and yet you just kept walking. As you entered your home and as you went to get your meal, you found yourself leaving the dishes there in your sink. I mean, this is the level of attention that Martin Luther was chronicling, and yet as crazy as he sounds, I think Martin Luther is onto something that if you actually slow down with the power of selfishness in your day-to-day life, if each of us actually were to look back this last week and just ask these what would you do questions over and over and over again, I think you would have to come to this conclusion with Martin Luther that you cannot escape the power of selfishness in your life. You cannot escape it. In fact, Martin Luther's picture was that he called it the incurvitus, the curving of the heart back in on itself. He would famously, as he wrestled in the Protestant Reformation, begin to say, I don't think any power of my own doing can help me escape my own selfishness. Isn't that stunning if you think about it? That that Martin Luther would be bold enough to say each of our hearts is actually curved back in on ourselves. As I sort of wrestle with this challenge of my own selfishness, the challenge that Martin Luther himself was wrestling with, the challenge that each of us at some level have to face. His conclusion, Martin Luther's conclusion, was that the only thing that could break the power of selfishness, the only force that could actually turn off the tractor beam in the Death Star and allow us to actually look outward at others has to be something that God can do for us. And so as we look at Jesus, as we look at Mark 10, 45, and as we kick off where we're going with this message, Jesus is going to say, I, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life, to give my life to literally ransom or redeem. The image is that of a slave who is being bought away from a different master and is now being released into some new freedom. This, my friends, is actually the gospel itself. This is the thing, the insight that Martin Luther had that would kick off this brand new revolution of the gospel working its way out through the church. And this revolution is that only God's grace, only the gift of God himself could free any of us from our own selfishness. So this morning, as you just think about your own life, um, I think selfishness is one of the great uniters in a culture of division. Selfishness is one of the few things we can all agree on. All of us are selfish. All of us cannot on our own power escape this tractor beam of our own inward focus. And yet the gospel, Jesus himself has come 
Not to be served, but so that he could serve and free you from your own selfishness. Now, that, I hope, sounds great. In fact, I think if you listen closely to what culture is saying, this is the longing of all of our hearts. Christians and non-Christians alike, all of us actually have this deep hunger to be able to live a life that's free from our own inward focus and could actually look outward and see the needs of others around us. And yet, yet the challenge, the question is, what does it even look like to live a life that is not selfish, right? What would, what would be the model? What would be the example? What would be the steps that we could follow Jesus in? If Jesus' gift of himself is beginning to transform us, what does that transformation look like in regards to our own selfishness? So this morning, I want to turn with you to a beloved and familiar passage in the Gospels, in the story of the Good Samaritan. And as we look at the Good Samaritan, I I think, as you're working through the Gospel of Luke, you actually see this very beautiful, complex story Jesus is telling, where Jesus is beginning to radically demonstrate a life of true generosity. Like, Jesus is actually embodying in, in himself the gift of God's grace that could release you and me from our own selfishness. But as Jesus is demonstrating this, as Jesus is living it out, questions are starting to come up from very religious people who have been trying really hard to break free of their own selfishness. And as they're trying to do it, they're looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, could you give me, could you give me something? Like, what is it, what could it look like? What does it take? What do you mean when you talk about this good news that could transform everything? So we find Jesus having this exchange that was pretty common, that Jesus, in sort of the upending message that Jesus was offering was disturbing everyone around him, especially the religious. And so on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. This expert asked, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus was controversial. Jesus stirred up a lot of opposition. Uh, There's clearly some ulterior motives going on in this expert in the law who perhaps is feeling threatened by just the radical love and generosity that Jesus is living. And yet, if you can sit with this question, I actually think there's something so beautiful and profound in what this teacher, this expert in the law is seeking, isn't it? I mean, sit with this for just a moment. What must you do to inherit eternal life? In the Greek, that word eternal life actually conveys like full abundance. It's not just some sort of ticket after death, where are you going when you die? This is actually inheriting. Think about inheriting like your family estate, uh, the hopes that one day your family will have something to pass down to you. This is an inheritance that would offer you eternal abundance in life. I mean, if you were actually in the crowd for this moment, as an expert in the law, stood up and asked this question, wouldn't you just be leaning in a little bit? Like, what is Jesus going to say here? So let's go to the next verse. Jesus responds, what is written in the law? How do you read it? I love here, if you get into the Gospels, Jesus is the playful rabbi. Jesus, Jesus doesn't take the bait. Jesus flips the question back on the person asking it. He's starting now to probe and unearth what this teacher, this expert in the law's motivations are. And yet Jesus is also conveying, listen, it's all there. It's all there in God's word for you. What does 
the word of God, the law, as God has offered it to Israel. What does the law say? So let's go ahead and go to the next verse. The teacher, the expert in the law answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now I'm just gonna pause here for a moment. I, so if you capture the tension, this teacher of the law takes us back to the heart of Deuteronomy, the two great commandments, the commandments, and I'm sure you've probably heard this before, the commandments in the heart of Israel's law are to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments capture a life, if you truly track with me, that is not selfish, a life that is focused outward, a life that is love pushing out into the world and transforming everything it's touching. Yet, even though Jesus gives it to him, you have answered correctly. Notice how Jesus pushes him. And this is where Jesus is pushing us even this morning. Jesus goes, do this and you will live, right? This isn't something that you can just think. This isn't something you can just affirm or adhere to. This is a commandment that must be lived out. To truly break out of selfishness, you must do this, loving God and loving your neighbor. But that brings up, I think, a very understandable question that the expert in the law is going to ask. So that we continue, the teacher of the law wanted to justify himself, asked, what do you mean uh, by love your neighbor? Who is my neighbor? There's a little bit of precision here. There's a little bit of rule following. There's a little bit of towing the line. This guy's trying to break down. What is the neighbor that if I love, I will now inherit life abundance? And this is finally the setup for where Jesus takes us into a story. Jesus is going to say, well, let me offer you a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped off his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. I'm going to give you just a little bit of context here. Uh, Jerusalem to Jericho is 14 miles. It was 14 miles that would move down. You drop about 2,000 feet in sea level as you're moving from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And the path, while clear, there was a road that went from Jerusalem to Jericho that many businessmen and women would have been going on. The truth was caves and hills frequented this very hilly, sort of treacherous road at various points. And so it was actually very, very common that that road from Jerusalem to Jericho would involve anyone from thieves to bandits to perhaps even political revolutionaries. That as you're walking this road, you could be in danger of experiencing exactly what this anonymous person experiences. He's attacked, his clothes are stripped off, all of his money's taken away, he's beaten, and then he is left for dead on the side of the road. Now, this is where the story, of course, gets very, very interesting. Jesus offers us a character who's going to enter on the scene. Jesus notes, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side of the road. This is the height of storytelling on Jesus' part. One sentence obliterates a character we all would have thought surely would react and respond with mercy and compassion to someone in need. And yet, even as it's easy for us to be quick to judge this priest, 
who would have been a religious figure involved in the worship at the temple, who would have known God's law inside and out, who would have known God's commandment to love God and to love his neighbor, I can't help but notice that we ourselves struggle with this exact same reality. In fact, I'm just going to bring it close to home for all of us, uncomfortably close to home because uh, I experienced it this morning. We in Chicago particularly, as we walk up and down the roads, as we drive up and down the streets, I'm sure you with me inevitably feel there's just this numbing effect as we see the homeless surrounding us. And it's difficult, it's just truly difficult to maintain a posture of openness, a posture of love. In fact, this morning I, I, uh, <laughs> I share this because it just couldn't get any more real. I stopped to get donuts for our volunteer team on Sunday mornings, which is great. I was walking past Dunkin' Donuts. As I'm walking up to Dunkin' Donuts, I uh, had my headphones in because the headphones as I'm walking to church, and a woman approaches me and starts to say something to me, and I immediately offer, as I am preparing to preach a message on the Good Samaritan, my typical response, which is, sorry, I don't have anything today, and then I lock in on the Dunkin' Donuts I'm buying for a volunteer team at my church. I share this real time to let you know the selfishness is in our very hearts. It is impossible, it's so difficult to break free of this gravitational force. Now, I will close the story by noting, I, of course, literally had the Spirit of God convict me in the moment to take my headphones out, to turn and ask her name, and to ask if I could buy her a donut from Dunkin' Donuts. But that does not, that does not break free the pattern in my life, which is a pattern of preferring to take care of myself that lives this priestly moment day in and day out. And so Jesus continues and he notes, so too a Levite. Sorry, if we go back one more slide. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. This is our typical posture. Yet, Jesus is going to introduce a third character. He notes, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. A Samaritan. The Samaritans were highly disregarded by the Jewish people. There's a deep cut of history where Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel, had been invaded by Assyria, and the Assyrians sent Gentiles, pagans, to the northern kingdom of Samaria, and they ended up intermarrying with formerly Jewish people, and that produces this ethnic class in northern Israel of Samaritans that begin practicing their own forms of worship, that have their own ways of approaching God, and yet claim to the Jewish people that they too are worshiping the same God. So you can only imagine the tensions, the disregard, even the hate that began to burn in the Jewish heart as they were interacting with these Samaritans. And yet Jesus in this story says, the Samaritan comes and sees, and notice the description and as we go to the next verse here. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now as you read through that, this is a very ancient description of care. And yet a couple of insights that are just fascinating. Uh, this man is going to pour his own oil and wine on the wounds of this man. Some commentators reflect, does, does this mean that the Samaritan now has no 
liquid. No oil, no wine for himself because he has poured it out for another. He's going to put him on his own donkey, meaning that for the next however many miles of road, this man is walking while his donkey is occupied. The inn that he takes him to, he's going to offer two whole days worth of wages, two denarii, which should buy about 24 nights of care at an inn for a poor person. And yet, it's easy to miss that this man says, that's not the end of my commitment. In essence, I will be the one who pays any charges this man incurs. And most commentators say, if you would have heard this in the ancient world, you'd say, it's like handing over a credit card to someone you don't know and saying, any expenses, I will cover them. As Jesus offers us this story, I can't help but feel it hit today with the same sort of audacity, the same sort of almost ridiculousness that it would have felt like in the ancient world. Jesus' audience would have, the same as us, felt the same sort of, you're asking me to live how? What, what are you saying, Jesus? What is it that you're encouraging us to do? And yet here's where Jesus ends the story in this final slide. Jesus is going to ask, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says to him, go and do likewise. Now, to sort of land this plane, I just want to give you three practical ways that if our community could actually rally here, rally against selfishness, could actually find the gospel's transformation of our own heart be so radical that we could be freed from this power and start looking outward, what would generosity through each of our lives look like? We'll go to the next slide. Generosity could be expressed by following the pattern of the Samaritan in three ways. First, generosity could be expressed in our hearts. Next, generosity could be expressed through our time. And third, generosity could be expressed through our resources. I think the, the movement is important here. We're actually gonna walk back this story quickly and just note how the Samaritan lives this out. So first, generosity is expressed in our hearts. We'll go to the next slide. Uh, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Do you notice that as Jesus is telling this story, the priest and the Levite see but are not moved in their hearts. Whereas the Samaritan, the action that is about to overflow through his life is going to begin first by seeing and feeling pity on this one who is in need. I, I think the most radical and challenging work any of us are gonna face, particularly as we live in the city, is figuring out how to have the gospel not just become a way of life, not just become a list of behaviors, not just to have our Christianity be some tick on a box of our sort of broad general identities, but instead the gospel's gotta keep coming back over and over and over right here into your heart. You have to be fully filled and transformed by the radicalness of Jesus's generosity for you. If you're ever going to be tender enough within your own being to see the needs and have compassion on this world that is around us. Uh, Martin Luther famously was challenged later in his life by his church who said, it seems like all you ever do, Martin Luther, is preach to us this message of grace 
that you say transforms everything. And Martin Luther's response was something along the lines of, well, every single day I forget it. And so every single day I need to hear it again. I think this is where the gospel needs to come to us. Jesus needs to come to us. We want to become a community that is so Jesus-centered that his generosity continues to open our hearts up. As we do that, our hearts will then help us see that our time is the most valuable and precious asset that we have. Our time in the city is precious. For most of us, our time can even be commodified. You might have billable hours through your work, or maybe you work an hourly wage job in which someone can tell you how much your time is worth. And yet, if we actually follow the Samaritan, note how he moves to go be present and attend to a need that is disrupting his own life. I love that he goes and bandages. Think of the time it takes to sit with someone physically harmed. Uh, He pours his own oil and wine. He puts the man on his own donkey. He's going to journey with him to this inn. I wonder for you, as we're about to have just a series of vision casting conversations upstairs, which again, we'd love for you to join us in Taco Fest. I wonder if there is a new invitation for you around your time and Community Lincoln Park. I know as a church, one of the things that we're often most sort of resistant, guarded to as we have conversations, as we talk about all the different things happening, there can be the sense of, oh, I'm, I'm okay with some of it, but like my time is, my time is mine. <laughs> my time is my precious resource. If I release too much time, then I might have to actually cut back on other things that really I want to be taken care of. In where we're going as a church, there is going to be an invitation for you to consider. Is there more time that you could extend to the needs of those around us here in this very room? Is there more time that we as a community can press out to serve and to share this good news that we have with others around us in the city? Finally, if our hearts can be transformed, if our time becomes the thing that is so disruptive when it comes to meeting the needs of others, Jesus would note that this is always costly. This is why selfishness is so easy to fall into. If we're going to actually love those in need, it will be our resources themselves, our very treasures that at some point we will have to extend. Uh, We'll go to the next slide. Next day he took two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus would say elsewhere in the Gospels, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I am not suggesting that you, as a result of this message, need to go out and hand your credit card out either to your closest friend or to people on the street. But I think, I think the image itself highlights a stirring in our own hearts. And this is a stirring that we as community across our whole network have been leaning into. It's a stirring that's pushing and saying, hey, post-COVID, post uh, the pandemic, post all the disruption that has happened in the church, we as a church have so many needs that we want to meet, and yet we are restricted, we are limited, and if we're going to do this, if we are going to be on mission together, it's going to take our resources themselves. It's going to be costly, and it's going to press up against each of our selfishness. But the invitation, the question, is that to truly free your heart up from that inward bent, At some point, it is our resources, even our money itself, that we're going to have to extend 
and release. And I promise you, if you join us in doing this posture towards God, if you join us in giving back to God, this is the moment when your heart with that inward bent begins to be opened up. So Jesus is going to say at the end of his parable, go and do likewise. Uh, We actually have a video that we've been uh, editing down that's a summary that just wants to give you a little snippet, again, financially of where we're at. Uh, I mentioned uh, we've been talking about these last several weeks. We have been moving to these new realities on the other side of COVID. We've actually seen a very strong financial push even these last couple weeks. Uh, The number I got just this last morning was that we've had $248,000 pledged in one-time gifts over the last couple weeks. But, uh, yeah, let's take just a moment to celebrate that. Uh, But uh, I just want to continue to lean in with you to the reality of where we are as a church, and I'll go ahead and let Dave share a summary here again. Hello, community. Because you love this church like I do, I want to take a few minutes to give you an update on the state of community. And I specifically want to be very transparent on how we're doing regarding two key areas, our mission and our finances. Let's start with the mission. Over the course of our history as a church, there have been a few bumps along the way, but overall, God has been very, very good to us. I mean, as year after year, more and more people find their way back to God. But then came the pandemic in 2020. And with it, so many questions. How would we function without meeting in person for 51 consecutive weeks? How do you help people find their way back to God when you can't be with people? And in spite of our best efforts to stay connected, some people drifted. So then last year, in 2021, we made a big adjustment. Instead of only meeting in physical locations, we became one church with four expressions. Like always, we meet in physical locations across the city and suburbs, but also digitally through communityonline.tv, through community freedom in prisons, and through new micro-expressions of the church that we call 3C Communities. Well, here we are in 2022. After a year of being one church with four expressions, I can say our mission has significant momentum. 40% of our people at physical locations are brand new. And we estimate that 70% of those in our other expressions are also brand new. In fact, on Easter week, we had over 12,000 people join us and 535 were brand new people. And even more encouraging than that is over the last 12 months, we've had more new people connect in small groups than ever before. And in the past six months alone, we've had more than 100 people say yes to following Jesus and were baptized. So in summary, our mission of helping people find their way back to God, it has tremendous momentum. Well, now let's talk about finances. In 2020, the pandemic brought a lot of questions financially too. How does a church take up an offering when we don't meet in person? (laughs) Will everyone really give online? How would our expenses change now that we're four expressions? So in 2021, we started over with one church with four expressions. And since we're still feeling the effects of the pandemic, we had to spend from our reserves and use some of the money we received from our PPP loan. Well, that brings us to this year, 2022. Going into fiscal year 2022, we cut our budgets by 10%, hoping that our giving would catch up with the mission. And now halfway into our fiscal year, our giving is at 85% of our reduced budget. Now, 85%, that might sound like, oh, well, that's a B, (laughs) so that's pretty good. And while it is good, when you consider all that we've been through, we cannot continue with a 15% gap. We really need to close that gap. 